So open your Bibles once again to the book of Philippians. Wonderful, hope-filled epistle called Philippians. There are, there are many verses in this book, as we mentioned, uh, that for, for centuries believers have cherished, they have loved, held on to, that we see in this book uh, memorized, and we'll see one of those verses actually today. So open your Bibles, there's Bibles in the back if you don't have one, to the book of Philippians. We are looking at chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. Hear the word, the holy inspired, infallible, and authoritative word of God. Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth. Christ is proclaimed, and then that I will rejoice. Well, that I will, uh, that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Verse 26. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. May God add a reading, a blessing to the reading of his word. So is Paul the apostle, the missionary, the church planter who started this church in Philippi, about 10 years earlier during his second missionary journeys, he was summoned by a man who had had a vision, and, and, and he was summoned, he said, come to Macedonia, Paul. Come to Europe, first time in Europe. Come to Philippi and preach the gospel. You find that in Acts chapter 16. Now it's 10 years later, and Paul is in Rome. He's under house arrest. He's imprisoned. And a man by the name of Epaphroditus from the city of Philippi comes to Paul in Rome while he's under arrest with a monetary gift. It turns out to be a whole lot more as we read this book together. Epaphroditus almost dies while he's in Rome and God has mercy on him and God restores Epaphroditus. And now Epaphroditus takes this letter penned by Paul from Rome back to Philippi, to the church who awaited to hear who's also stressed out knowing that Epaphrodites almost died. The overall theme of this book, our title tells it all, Gospel Joy. Gospel Joy, because true and lasting and eternal joy is only found in the gospel. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the gospel. After a brief introduction, Paul and Timothy introduced themselves as slaves, obedient, willing slaves of Christ. Paul jumps into this letter, unlike other letters, with, this, with, these, with these words filled with, with a heartfelt love and joy and thanksgiving. It appears this church is probably the most beloved church that Paul has planted. In verses 3 through 11, Paul speaks of their gospel partnership, verse 4. Verse 5, because of your partnership, joint participation, 
speaks of the joy that he has with participating with them. He gives, he, he gives them, he, he says, I pray with, with thanksgiving, with all joy, remembering you as you joined with me, linking arms with me in demonstrating, declaring the gospel to the world. And because of this gospel evidence of love and service for the Lord, love and service for Paul, love and service for the lost, for the people of Philippi, he's confident that God was going to finish the work that he started at their salvation Namely, sanctification, that God would continue to do the work that he started. I'm confident, I'm sure of this, he says. Because of that, Paul says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you out of the affections of Christ, the love of the gospel and the love of Jesus in my heart. I'm praying that you do not stay stagnant in your love, but grow in love and all discernment, verses 9 through 11, that you may approve what is excellent, what's pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Last week, we looked at 12 through 18a. And Pastor Ricky did a great job explaining and teaching about the joy of gospel advancement. Although I'm a little disappointed from last week's sermon, I have to say, well, I don't know if Ricky's here, not one single mention of Seinfeld. <sighs> I was waiting. <laughs> the Apostle Paul, as Ricky pointed out, was filled with the joy that the gospel was spreading, the kingdom of God was advancing. Not in spite of, but because of persecution, the joy of gospel advancement. Verse 12, Paul says, because of his imprisonment, Christ is made known to to the whole imperial guard. And to all the rest at my imprisonment, I'm in chains because of Christ. And the awesome consequences, Paul says, in, 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 uh, in the imprisonment preaching, that brothers are being more confident, being more bold, and speaking the word without fear. He's like, I'm rejoicing in that. We ended last week with Paul rejoicing that the gospel was being proclaimed even though some people had horrible motives, right? There were envious, there was strife, selfishness. Paul even rejoiced that their motive, even though their motive was actually to hurt them. Look at chapter 1, verse 17b. Thinking, he says, to afflict me in my imprisonment. (laughs) To afflict me. What does Paul say? I'm going to rejoice. What then? Verse 18. Only in every way. In, in, in the preaching, in the imperial guard, in, in, the, in the boldness of the preaching of other brothers, in the false motives and those who are trying to hurt me, in all and every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, proclaimed, announced. And in that I rejoice. Greek verb in the present tense, I am rejo- as I'm writing this, I am rejoicing in all that. But the second part of that verse, 18b, the ESV has it actually uh, uh, changed, it actually, excuse me, it has a separation between 18a and 18b. He says, in that I rejoice presently, yes, he says, 18b, and I will rejoice, see that? That's a Greek future verb. It's speaking of an action that's being done in and occurring in the future. So I'm rejoicing now and thinking of all this. I'm rejoicing. Christ is being preached. The guard, everyone's starting to hear the gospel. It's permeating my area. I notice some are doing it wrongly and trying to hurt me even, but I'm, gonna, I'm going to rejoice. And then he says, but I'm going to continue in the future rejoicing. 
I want you to see that. Because he moves from his present joy concerning this advancement of the gospel by any and every means to his future joy. That's the change. That's the context. So what is Paul looking forward that would cause him to rejoice? I titled this sermon, The Joy of Gospel Community. And what we'll see as as he's looking forward, three things. The joy of future deliverance, the joy of future departure, and the joy of future discipleship. Verse 18. A. A B, excuse me. Yes, I will rejoice. Okay, Paul, what is it about the future... For I know, verse 19, that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul's future joy is based on what he has come to know. For I know, he says, oida, to to know for certain, to know in the mind, to know intellectually, to understand that this will turn out. What is this? All that I'm going through the imprisonment, even the mixed motives in the gospel that's being preached, all of this will turn out for my deliverance. I know this. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a certainty or an attitude of, uh, of certainty. Like, I, I, I know this intellectually. I know th- this to be true. Now, before we get into just how Paul knows about that deliverance, we must ask the question, which you probably don't, but I'll show you why we need to. What is he being delivered from? What is Paul being, what is, what, is, what is he certain, or at least has some certainty, I know this will turn out, all that I'm going through will turn out for my deliverance. The problem in that verse lies with the word deliverance. Soteria, it's, it's, it's often, not exhaustively, but often translated salvation. Soteria, salvation. Our salvation, when Paul talks about this, he talks about the salvation that Jesus provides as he died for our sins, rises from the dead, conquers sin, death, and hell. And, and in other words, Paul's saying, listen, the difficulties I face, in the end, I'll be saved. I'll be eternal security, eternal salvation. Ultimately, I'll be in the presence of Christ. But the problem with that, or at least the, the, the argument with that, is that that word, that word soteria can also mean Health and well-being, you see that in the New Testament as well. In other words, he's saying, you know what? This will turn out for my well-being. I'm going to be okay. Others say he's using the term to say that I will be vindicated. That's another way in which the term is used in the New Testament. I will, will be vindicated before God. We see that all over the Psalms. Or I'll be, which I, 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 I don't know if I lean this way, but, or he's saying I will be vindicated in the court, in my trial, I will be delivered, I, I'm certain of that, or at least I know that, I'll be delivered from prison, I'll be released. Paul speaks about meeting with them again, chapter 1, verse 25, we'll get to that, and again in chapter 2, verse 24, this kind of certainty that I'll see you again. What's interesting about that verse that I want to share with you this morning is it's a direct quote from the Old Testament, from what's called the Septuagint. It's the Greek Old Testament. Paul, writing in Greek, obviously, in the New Testament, he quotes exactly from Job chapter 13, verse 13. Now, you know the book of Job a little bit? Let me me read to you Job chapter 13, verse 13 through 16. He says this, Job says this, Let me have silence, and I will speak. And let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, remember what's going on with Job. 
Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Talking about God. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be for my salvation. That's the exact quote that he's quoting from. This will turn out for my deliverance. This will be to my deliverance that the godless shall not come before me. The context is Job, if you remember, Job loses everything and his stupid friends come and try to encourage him. And they don't do that, right? They do the opposite. They're like, Job, you did something wrong. You sinned against God. You're being punished. Bad advice. You're suffering because you sin. No, that's not the cause. And Job sticks to his gun and says, listen, I'm going to trust God. I'm putting my trust in God for my salvation, my deliverance, my vindication against your false accusations. This ain't suffering because of my own hand. I didn't do anything. I'm not, I'm not being punished. Does that sound familiar? Sounds a lot like bad actors against Paul, who's speaking evil, envious, stirring up trouble against him. Job said, though he slay me, I'll hope in him. I'll be delivered. I'll be vindicated in the end. I may die as well, but God will be there for me as my deliverer, my, my forgiver, my fortress. And like Job, Paul would stand vindicated at last. What we see is Paul's ultimate hope of standing, we'll see in a minute, unashamed, he says, both before the human judges when he's in Rome and before the Lord. He's only following what he told the church earlier in verse 6. I'm sure of this, but that he who began a good work, Paul's saying in me, will bring it to completion of the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's saying that's what's happening. I don't think he's overly concerned about the outcome of his imprisonment. What he is certain about is that God will vindicate him when all the dust settles. The apostle knows that despite appearances, what may other people see, God is still sovereign over the affairs of his life, and God will safely, safely see him through. He will bring ultimate, eternal vindication, and therefore Paul's hope is finally and fully on God. Paul views present trouble like Job. Job was a faithful man, yet Job was vindicated. And Paul could say the same thing. I know that I will be delivered. Paul writes to Second Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy in Second Timothy. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly king. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul told the church at Rome, right? All things work together for the good. For those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So whether I'm released from prison in this life, whether I'm vindicated in the trial at Rome, whether my physical well-being, I'll be okay, or whether I'm going to go home to glory in my death, I will be delivered. How, Paul? How can you be certain? How can you know that you will be delivered? Look what he says. Two things. Through the power of prayer and the provision of the Spirit. The power of prayer and through the provision of the Spirit. What he says. Through your prayers, through your prayers, in spite of Paul's certainty of his joyful deliverance, he is seeking the help of his community. He sought the prayers of his people, of God's people on his behalf. Paul understood that God ordains the means and the ends of his eternal decree. It is through the prayer of others that God is going to accomplish his his purposes It is our joyful duty to to pray for one another. 
I hope that's going on in community groups, spending time in prayer for one another. You're spending time in prayer on Realm. Uh, we post, if you're not on Realm, you need to get on Realm. And, and as, as prayers are, uh, people are asking for prayer. It is our joyful duty to pray for one another. And I want you to miss this. God uses the community of believers as instruments of his glory. Instruments for his glory and eternal plans. What a joy it is to be used of God to help other people. Are, are we praying for one another? Colossians 1.9. It sounds a lot like Philippians 1. Colossians 1.9. And so, Paul writes to the Colossi church. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Sounds like Philippians 1, 9 through 11. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. We'll get to that next week. Chapter 1, verse 27 of Philippians. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. That's Colossians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, God delivered us from such a deadly peril, and, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Now, Paul is absolutely sure that God will deliver him. He just said that. Listen to the next verse. You also must help us by prayer. God's going to deliver me. I need your help with prayer. See that? Well, that doesn't, that, where, where does that fit together? God ordained the means and the ends to use you and I in prayer. You must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The joy and thanksgiving of seeing God answer prayer among the community of God's people. If we're not praying for one another, if we don't know how to pray for one another, if we're not seeing God answer prayer, we can't enjoy thanksgiving and joy to God. That's why we have realm. While we pray in community groups. I mean, we need to, do, we, do we take it seriously? Do we take the responsibility to pray seriously? Do we, do we pray that God would grant to our brothers and sisters spiritual strength? Many of you, uh, there's, a, there's a few families in this church, I know, that said to me, and I'm taking them at their word, uh, we, we pray for you every morning. We pray for you every morning. We pray for your family, we pray for your wife, we pray for you every morning. I appreciate that. Many of you told me we're praying for the church. We're praying for the pastoral team. I can tell you right now, we're meeting and we're gathering and, and, and we're moving forward in the de- demonstration, declaration of the gospel here at King's Chapel through the prayers of God's people. I'll tell you that right now. I'm very confident of that. Listen, God, excuse me, Paul trusted, Paul trusted God to keep his promises. Paul believed in the sovereignty of God, in the eternal purposes of God, but he also knew that God achieved his work and brought his purposes to completion through the prayers of his people. We are, God is sovereign, we are responsible. And God ordained the means and the ends. Paul said to the Philippian church who loved him so dearly, who participated with him in the advancement of the gospel, that the fervent prayers of men and women produce fruit and have great effect through the prayers. Second, through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Look at the text. The help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He's obviously talking about the Holy Spirit. Within the Trinity, the Spirit of God is called the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus. He's talking about the third person of the Trinity. And it says that Jesus, the help of the, of the Spirit. The word help is the word support or supply. 
The term actually is the bountiful, a full supply. So that the, the full supply and, and bountiful supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, he's not talking about the Spirit is the provision, although that's true. What he's saying is the Spirit will supply the power for whatever is necessary to sustain me, to deliver me. So here's Paul, chained, right, in a Roman custody, but confident as the community of believers are praying that God will pour out his Spirit, renew the power of the Spirit to help him, to be poured out in his heart, to empower him, to overcome the trials. No matter what the outcome, he, he, he says, I'm trusting in your prayers. I'm relying on the power to be ultimately, a power of the Spirit to be delivered. Paul's convinced that those who shared in his partnership, in this partnership, in his advancement of the gospel, pray for him. And God's powerful provision was through his Spirit. Union with Christ, fellowship, partnership, community. And Paul says, I have great joy. So, I thought about that, and I think about my own life, my own circumstances. Maybe you could think about yours for a moment. Are we, are we living our life? Are we walking? Are we enduring circumstances joyfully? Knowing that in the end, by God's promise, by the prayers of God's people, by the abundant provision of the Spirit, that in the end, we'll have victory. No matter what. Romans chapter 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. Distress, persecution, nakedness? No. No, in all these things we are more than what? Conquerors through him who what? Loved us. That's the confidence that Paul has. Verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's joy in his future deliverance due to the prayers of God's people, the provision of the Spirit, but also this resolve of Paul to make much of Jesus. The word eager expectation is a very strong, picturesque, word it's actually made up of three different words in in uh, in the greek and each one of them means something it means the three parts of the head away and to watch and what what the picture of this verb is very strong it's that a person is is turned away from everything and looking at one thing and his head is stretching forward and he's he's with eager expectation turning his back on all other things but one thing as he's stretching forward to see and Paul adds to this, couples that, that this eager expectation is with hope. When you think of hope, I don't know what you think of, but biblical hope is sure hope. Hope in Scripture is absolute guaranteed hope. It's not the hope that I hope the Jets finally win a game. That's a different kind of hope. This is a, this is a confident hope that will take place. Paul is making very clear that even when the prayers of others and the power of the Spirit, he needs to have this determination to serve the purpose of God. A, a, a course, uh, in, uh, this resolve, I should say, in the matters of, of, of God. And it's all by grace. I mean, he'll say in chapter 2, verse 13, that God is doing the work. 
So he's not, he's not saying this is about me. He's just saying there's a resolve. Uh, there is this, this eager expectation, this hope that I will not be ashamed. Now, the word ashamed is not, you know, I did something bad, I feel bad. That's not. The biblical word ashamed has to do with uh, being disappointed. According to Scripture, the person who's not ashamed is the person whose trust is not misplaced and who is therefore never disillusioned. We see that in 2 Timothy Paul writes to Timothy, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I am convinced, right? I'm not disillusioned. I'm not not, uh, disappointed. I am convinced that he, God, is able to guard what I have entrusted for him for that day. That's, That's the word of shame. Indeed, none who wait for you, Psalm says, will be put to shame. Paul's meaning here is that God will not allow him to be to be put ashamed of the evil forces that are against him, but will ultimately triumph as he proclaims, look what it says, full courage, boldness of speech, a determined life, all by the grace of God. And what, what's the point? Look at the text. Rejoice through your prayers and help. The Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance, my vindication. It is my eager expectation, hope that I will not be, put ashamed, be at all ashamed, disappointed, but with full courage, that's the preaching, the proclamation of the gospel, as always, Christ will be what? Honored. That's the point. That Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That word honored has to do with magnifying, glorifying. If you have a NIV, they use the word exalted. King James uh, translation um, magnify, that's what it means. So, Paul's saying, whether Roman imprisonment or anything that happens or will happen, I'm not shrinking back. I'm boldly declaring Christ to others. I'm going to remain steadfast in my passion toward Christ because everything I do, I want Christ to be magnified through me. Paul is the instrument by which the greatness of Christ, the beauty and glory, sufficiency of Christ is seen. That's what that word means. Now, there are two kinds of magnification, right? You have the telescope and the microscope, right? The microscope uh, makes things that are little big, right? But Christ isn't little. A telescope makes things that are big and far away closer. When an astrologist looks at a telescope and sees the stars and planets, neither the telescope or the person change the essence or the character of the stars. The telescope brings what? That stuff closer so that you could see it. In the same way, Paul is saying, listen, we are vessels that Christ can be, that Christ can use to to magnify, to make much of himself. And Paul says, I'll do that whether I live or I die. Whether I live or die. Paul magnifies Christ's life or death. In his life, as he proclaims the gospel, as he teaches the gospel, as he he tells others about the perfect life of Jesus, the atoning death of Jesus, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice of Jesus, his glorious resurrection of Jesus, that's my life, but also by my death. Paul, how do you magnify Christ in your death? I think he would say to to, to, to treasure Christ above everything that death is removes to know and treasure christ above all that staying alive gives you in this world the adversity in our life is an opportunity to treasure christ to to magnify christ to to make christ known and make christ big and make christ seem beautiful 
And when we do that, it draws people who are far away from him closer to him. Quite often, the Lord uses adversity in our lives as a lens so that he can be magnified in our lives. Sometimes, as Christians, you don't have to raise your hand, we want to hide from adversity because we think somehow we go through hardships and trials. Christians aren't supposed to go through that. And yet Christ wants to be magnified in your hardship as you trust in him, rely upon him, cry out to him, wait on him. Whether by life or by death, as we get it in verse 21. So I, I change the, now with the joy of future departure. Uh, even though there's really, it's really connected, verse 20 and 21 are really connected, but I want to do this separately. And Paul says that he knows that in his body, in his person, Christ will be magnified because to, to me, to live is what? Christ. And to die is gain. If that were not true, Christ would not be magnified. The very essence of Paul's present life and the convictions of his future glory was Christ. He remained single-minded, single-purpose, one-life purpose, one audience he was living for, the glory of one. That's Jesus. Whether he lives or dies, Paul says, I want to glorify Christ. There was such an intimate relationship with Jesus. His entire existence then could be said very simply, Christ. And the reason I'm able to have hope and confidence is I wait in sentence, not really sure that my meaning in life, my purpose in life is to exalt Christ, life or death. Can you imagine if this resolve of Paul, empowered by the Holy Spirit, if this resolve of Paul, powered by the Holy Spirit, when we face hardship and difficulties, would be the same with us, that our resolve would be the same? What kind of, what, what, what would that kind of resolve produce in you? What would that produce in you if that had that resolve? Gospel joy. That's a trick question. What does it mean to live? What does it mean that Christ is my life? To live as Christ. Dr. Ligon Duncan says this. It means my total life meaning and fulfillment is knowing Christ, in loving Christ, in serving Christ, in glorifying Christ, enjoying Christ, fellowshipping and communing with Christ, end quote. To live as Christ means that everything and everyone Everything and everyone is subservient to my love and treasuring and service to Christ. Every decision, every desire, every affection is secondary to that of Christ and the opportunity to see him known. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. So, so yeah, Christ is the source of Paul's life. Yes, Christ is the hope of glory, Colossians says, of, of Paul. Christ even dwells within Paul, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying here, to live is Christ. There's no sacred and secular. There's no, there's no I have this sacred time in my life when I'm at church and, and now I'm doing the things on Sunday and then I have the secular part of me that works and does these things throughout the week. No, not for Paul. For Paul, it's summed up simply Christ. Listen to this other definition by MacArthur. He says this about Christ is my life. He says this, I'm filled with Christ. I am occupied with Christ. I trust, love, and hope in Christ. Obey Christ, preach Christ, follow Christ, fellowship with Christ. Christ is the center circumference of my life. It's all Christ. 
Christ and Christ alone is my inspiration, my direction, my meaning, my purpose, consumed, dominated by Christ, end quote. Now think for a minute, if that was true, and it is for Paul, let's say it's true for us, then to die is gain makes sense, right? For Paul, death is gain because it's the closest possible union you can have for the one he lives for. Pastor Sean Nolan, uh, son, I, I was about four or five years old from Engaged Church Albany, we support that church plant. Told him on Friday, I told him I was going to quote him. His little son said to him, Dad, one day I'll die and see God and tell him I love Jesus and he'll give me a big squishy hug. <sighs> he understands, right? To live as Christ, to die is gain. I can hear the Roman soldiers now, right? Paul, I'm telling you for the 35th time, shut up. We're tired of hearing about Jesus. We're tired of hearing about the cross. We're tired of, hear, we're tired of hearing about salvation. In fact, if you don't shut up, we're going to kill you. He's like, okay, let me tell you about Jesus. He died on a cross. He rose from the dead. Like, well, I'm telling you, we're going to kill you. I'm like, all right, that's okay. Paul faced death. Death is hard to talk about. I understand that. But Paul faced death with the same steadfastness that marked his approach to life. For him, both death and life meant service to Christ. Many people pointed out, and I will this morning as well, that if you take the word Christ out of that verse, to live as Christ and die as gain, if you take the word Christ out and add anything else to that word, or in place of that word, it's not gain, it's actually loss, right? So to live for my money is to die as loss. To live for my job, to die as loss. To live for my looks and my health, to die as loss. To live for my family, my children, my spouse, my grandchildren, to die is loss. To live for power or moral goodness, to die is loss. If your career is collapsing and your whole life is collapsing, the problem is not the circumstance of your life, it's the definition of your life. My life. If your life is collapsing because your career, your health, your relationships are collapsing, it's because that is your life and it's not Christ. Let me ask you this question. Is Paul's statement in chapter 1, verse 21, to live as Christ to die as gain, is it just for him? Is it only for the spiritual elite, those missionaries, other real spiritual ones? Or is his confidence, his motto, belonging to all of us? To live as Christ, to die as gain. Part of the problem is we see, especially lately, right? I don't want to die. Nobody wants to die. And really living around here ain't so great either. But he says, you know what? I, they're both blessings. And you know what? I'm having trouble deciding which one I want more. Verse 22. For if I am to live on in the flesh or live on in the body or live in this world, that means fruitful labor for me. I get that. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. It's not like he's whether I should jump off a bridge or not. It's just this is going on eternally within him. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire, epithumia, my passionate longing, my affection, my joy, my mega affection, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far, very much better. I'd rather depart. Interesting word, depart. Um, it could mean a couple of things. Um, it, it could mean uh, setting free a slave in those days. It could mean, uh, 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 they would use that word when a ship was sailing and leaving a port. 
and, and, and moving on. It's also used of, of breaking up a camp. The soldiers would gather around a camp in the fields and they would be marching on. And some people say, well, Paul was a tent maker. That kind of makes sense. But in all these instances, it conveys the idea of leaving something permanently behind. Paul is well aware that to part from this world is better. Not because death is better, but being in the presence of Jesus is far better than anything this world can offer. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body, which means death, is to be home with the Lord. But notice in verse 22, he, he talks about staying in this world with, uh, and, and it's synonymous really with fruitful labor. Do you see that? So why? Because to live is Christ, so there's labor that needs to be done. I, if, if I stay longer, the joy of my life is living on mission with Jesus, being used of Christ as he builds his church, to be used of Christ to love people, to be used of Christ to share the message of the gospel with people. Sticking around would give the opportunity for Paul to live longer and therefore be on more missionary journeys, see more churches planted, building up brothers and sisters in Christ. He says in verse 21 and 23, I'm hard-pressed. There's desire for me to leave, but there's desire for me for fruitful labor. He yearned to be with the Lord. He yearned to be with his Lord. He recognized that God had called him, though, to serve other people. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your accounts. You know, adversity, hardship, when we're really going through something very difficult, the natural response is shut the door, shut the lights, shut out community, and suffer alone. I, I don't know why, but that's the way it is. And that's the opposite of what Paul is saying. The natural response is to run and hide, neglect the others. We look for relief at all costs. Not for Paul. Paul says, no, even in the hardship, the joy of serving others was my approach to adversity. He loved the people of Philippi because he was consumed with Christ and that led him to what? Be concerned for other people. You may have heard it said that someone is so heavenly minded and not earthly good. I might be showing my age, but. You're so heavenly minded, no earthly good. All you're thinking about is, 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 is Jesus and you're not helping anyone in your community. Well, that may be true, but that's not true for Paul. He was so heavenly minded that he was very earthly good, serving, loving people. He knew he'd spend eternity in heaven, but he knows that his days were numbered on earth and he wanted to make it count for Jesus. We need to make our days count for Jesus, our time count for Jesus. Colossians again. Paul says, continue steadfast in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. This is Paul seeking prayer, that God would open the door for the word of God to declare the mystery of Christ, of the reason I'm in prison, that I may make it clear how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom, making the best use of the time. Yeah, it is a joy of future departure, but you know what? Paul says, listen, when we partner in the gospel together, it brings joy. It brings joy to my heart. When Christ is proclaimed, it brings joy to my heart. When Christ is, is used me as a vessel to magnify his glory and beauty, it brings joy to my heart. Whether, whether I live or die, it brings joy to my heart. In fact, I'd rather go, <laughs> but I know I need to stay for your behalf. To part, 
to depart and be in the presence of Christ because he loved Jesus. But in reality, he knew that there was more discipleship that needed to come. Verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul's convinced I'll remain. Commentators are like all over the map on this. Like, how is he convinced about this? Did the Lord speak to him? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think the Lord gave him like a dream or a, a word where he was convinced in that sense. Otherwise, he would say the Lord, you know, which the Lord had done to him. He showed up and told him. I think there's a conviction of Paul. There's an there's a, there's a unction. There's a heartfelt conviction, maybe, of his assessment of what's going on in Rome, his imprisonment. Maybe he knew that Rome really had no real reason to punish him. Or maybe it was just that he had this conviction, this love for the Philippian church, and he was assured, you know what, I want to spend some more time with them. In fact, the word remain means to come alongside and to be a helper. So for Paul to remain, to continue, means they have to, he had to be there. He was going to come alongside. He was going to come alongside and encourage them and strengthen them in their faith. But look what it says for the reason, right? Their faith, for the progress and joy. There's that word again. The progress and joy in the faith. The words progress and joy united by the same article and, mod- and, and both modified by the phrase in the faith. In other words, this, this progress was going to produce Greater faith and greater joy. Last week when Pastor Ricky mentioned in verse 12, advance the gospel, that word advance, he said is that the pioneering and the forging ahead and the creating the path, it's the same Greek word here. What Paul is saying here is, I'm convinced and I will remain, I will come alongside you and continue with you all for your progress, you're forging your head, you're, you're pioneering in the faith with re, which will result in genuine joy in the faith. They go together. Paul's continued ministry among the Philippians would be aimed at advancing their spiritual growth and it would deepen, listen, deepen their joy in the faith. So as their faith increased, as they grew in trusting God, their joy would increase. That's a good question to ask us, Right? Are, are you growing in your faith? You say, yes, I'm growing. I'm, I'm staying in the word. I'm, I'm living in community. I'm coming to hear the word preached. I'm growing in my faith. Are you growing in joy? Talk about that in your community groups. <laughs> Paul says to grow in joy. Community, together at its best, working together for the cause of Christ, bringing joy to the heart of God's people. I live on, I press on, Paul says, so that others may grow in Christ, grow in joy and being glorified and glorify Christ. Convinced of this, I will remain. I'll continue with you. I want to see that advancement, that, that forging ahead, growing in your faith that will bring joy, growth and joy. And verse 26 is the last verse. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Another, another interesting word. Cause to glory means to, to boast, to, to, to be proud. It carries the idea of having a reason for your joy, for your boasting. The object, what's the object of your joy? Was the boasting of your joy? And Paul tells us what it means. It, it, it's, it, the NIV, if you have an old NIV, it says this. I think it's a little more clear what Paul's trying to say. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. 
See the flow of that? The New King James Version caps it well too. It says this, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So there's this boasting, this, this, this prideful in, in, in a biblical sense, a good sense of boasting in Jesus Christ is the grounds, the base of the reason for this overflowing joy. Notice three reasons why. We'll hit them quickly. Number one, it's Paul. Look what it says. It says, so that in me, it's, it's this relationship that Paul has to the church In me, I am the apostle, I am the church planner. There's a a relationship between the church and their pastor. Hopefully, if you see me out at a place that brings joy to your heart, not like. Let's get out of here. Pastor Lou just walked in. You know, hopefully it's like, hey, look who's here, you know? Love and joy relationship with Paul as the hands and feet of Jesus. The second reason the Philippians would rejoice in Christ is because the ample cause or abundant, New King James, of joy is their union with Christ. You may have ample cause to glory in Christ. Paul knew Jesus is the foundation, the substance, the heart, and the center of joy. The third reason the Philippians would rejoice is because of, of Paul's return. So that in me, our relationship you have ample cause to glory, to, to, to boast, to be joyful in Christ Jesus, the source of joy, and because of my coming to you again. The joy that the trial would be over, the joy that there's a reuniting happening again. Rejoice with me, I'm coming to you. That is why Paul wants to stay on earth a little bit longer. Even though he has a strong desire to depart, he wants to see them grow in their faith and grow in their joy. He said to the church of Corinth, now that... We don't lord over you. We don't lord it over you or over your faith, but we work with you with your joy that you stand firm in the faith. Have you ever thought about ministry like that? Have you ever thought about discipleship like that? You ever thought about gathering in your community groups throughout the week that your, your purpose or you're determined to see others filled with joy? Recognizing that your brothers and sisters in Christ, I mean, is that what we identify discipleship with? Can, can you identify with that mission? Regularly striving and thinking about the benefit and the progress and the, the, the growing of their faith so that their joy, brothers and sisters in our groups, in our community, in our churches, would be filled with joy as we progress in the faith. Discipleship, helping people grow in their faith, helping people have more joy in Christ, ministering so others would glorify Jesus more and more. Paul wanted to stay around for a little longer, right? He was willing to postpone his ultimate joy of being with Christ for the joy of ministry, discipleship, making disciples who make disciples, who, who, who advance the gospel, who share in the joy of Christ. That's what he's saying. That's, that's something to think about. As we meet together, as we gather together, as we talk together, as we read scripture together, as we live life together. Joy. Joy of knowing Christ. Listen, when Paul met Jesus, everything changed. He went from a devoted religious leader who didn't know Christ, had no relationship with God. He thought his own righteousness was enough because of his religious moral goodness, keeping the law, keeping the rules. But when he traded his self-righteous life 
in his religious virtue and traded for the righteousness of Christ, Jesus, he found life. He came to realize everything was inferior to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. That's the good news. That's the gospel. If you're trusting in yourself this morning, if you're trusting in your own goodness, if you're trusting in your own moral righteous, your life is about you, and in the end, it will be loss. But the good news is that grace is available in the person, the work of Jesus, who Philippians 2 tells us humbled himself. He died in our place. He died the death we deserve. He paid the penalty for sinners like you and me. He rose from the dead on our behalf, and now he's reigning over the world. And the Bible says that there is a righteousness that depends on faith, not works. It is the righteousness of Christ. So I'm asking you, church, this morning, turn away from your own efforts and trust Christ alone if you've never done so. He will forgive you. He will give you his righteousness. He will change your current life goals and passions and give you himself. And he'll change your eternal destiny. Everyone wants to live and everyone will die. But there's only one way to have a life worth living and a death worth dying. And that is to look at the one who has conquered sin and conquered death and conquered the grave. Who Paul would say, look to him above all things. If you see Christ as he is, you too will say, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Do you know Christ like that? We're going to take communion together. It's a time to, to contemplate. It's a time to think through what we've been talking about. It's a time to respond to the message today. Are there things that you're living in your life for that are not worthy or that are false, that will never, ever support and satisfy you, ever? Now is the, the time. Today is the day to say, I want Christ as my life. You never invited him into your life. Invite him into your life today. Father, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against Christ. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. I need salvation. I turn from my own self-justification, trying to earn my way, and I'm resting solely in the person of Christ and the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. If you've never done so, do so today. This communion together as we take of the cup, the band can come up. As we take up the cup, now, now listen to me. Just a little practical. You want to open up the top and take the wafer out and be careful when you open up the juice. But this, this bread, this cup, symbolizes the gospel. It doesn't save you. Christ saves you. But it's a reminder for what we are living for and who we are living for, and that's Christ and the gospel. So as we celebrate the Lord. Supper, as we commune together, I will tell you this communion cup and this bread is for believers. If you're a follower of Christ, or if you never follow Christ, say, yes, today I want to follow Christ, I invite you to take communion. But if you're not a follower, please do not partake communion. It's for the family of God. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks. He broke it and he gave thanks. He said, this is my body which is given for you. We not only remember the gospel, but Christ invites us by the power of the Spirit to enjoy him, to love him, to treasure him, to confess our sins, to repent of our sins, but to celebrate the work of Christ. He gave his body for you. 
He is the greatest treasure. He will satisfy the soul greater than anything this world can offer. And then he took the cup. And he said the cup is, is, is the cup that's poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. That Christ shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin. The Bible says that, that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. The body was broken. His blood that was spilt for your behalf. So whatever idols in your life, whatever things you're living for that's not Christ, now's the time. Quietly in your seat, put a curtain around your soul. Let's spend some time quietly in prayer before we take communion together. Time of confession, repentance, and celebration. Father, we confess there are so many things that are trying to grab our ultimate attention. Whether it's concerns or worries or uncertainties of the future, whether it's wayward children, whether it's wayward spouses or family, whatever it may be, Lord, it's that, that takes our full attention, Lord, but when it needs to be upon you. And yes, those things are hard and those things are difficult, Lord, but we want to live for you. We want to live our life for you. You gave your life for us and we want to live for you, for your ultimate glory and our joy. So, Father, we confess our sin. We confess our sin. We confess we've put idols and other things in your place. And now by the power of your spirit, we remove those idols and we worship you, the one true and living God. May we live for Christ and may we die, it will be gain. Father, thank you for this time as we celebrate your forgiveness and the work that you have accomplished for us, Lord Jesus, on the cross. In Jesus' good name. Let's take up the bread family together as we eat. As I said, I suggest you open it away from you. The blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Let us drink. Father, thank you for this time. We want to walk away encouraged. We know we'll never get it right perfectly right Lord but we we want to live and we want to strive and we want you to empower us to live for your glory help us to do so as we are walking in fellowship with you being cleansed and washed by the blood of Jesus each and every moment of each and every day in Jesus good name